We have what we need right now to make the transition to a sustainable economy. Welcome to Agenda Dialogues, top-level discussions on the world's biggest issues, hosted by World Economic Forum President Borger Brenda. On this episode, tackling the climate crisis. The world is crossing the long-awaited political tipping point right now. Former U.S. Vice President and longtime climate campaigner Al Gore joins leaders from government, business and civil society in Asia, Africa and North America to look at the climate challenge and the continuing COVID pandemic. The Stone Age didn't end because of a shortage of stone and the fossil fuel age will not end because of a shortage of fossil fuels. Both the first and this one will end because something better has come along. We're at the early stages of a sustainability revolution. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. From the World Economic Forum, this is the Agenda Dialogues. Hello from the World Economic Forum in Geneva, Switzerland. I'm Adrian Monk. Welcome to this Agenda Dialogue on how to tackle the climate emergency. In this hour, we'll be hearing from leaders who are working to deliver a sustainable future, and we have guests from India on how the world can help as it tackles a devastating phase of the COVID crisis. Speakers today, Al Gore, former Vice President of the United States. From Canada, Minister of Innovation, Science and Industry, François-Philippe Champagne. From Washington State in the US, Governor Jay Inslee. From Chad, Hindu Umaru Ibrahim, who's a climate and indigenous rights campaigner from the front line of rising global temperatures. We have Fika Sibesma, who leads the Forum's Alliance of CEO Climate Leaders and is honorary chair at Royal DSM in the Netherlands. From India, we have Annie Shah, MD and CEO of Mahindra Group, and also one of the leaders from the Indian healthcare sector, Shabana Kamanini, who's executive vice chair of Apollo Hospitals. She'll be joined by Jenya Dana, who's head of health and healthcare here at the World Economic Forum. Hearing from all of them, but to introduce and lead our discussion, over to the president of the World Economic Forum, Borga Brenda. Thank you so much, Adrian. As you underlined, we have a great panel today, also discussing uh, the two most pressing global issues. Of course, climate change, uh, but also the unfolding pandemic. Let me, uh, without any further ado, uh, go to uh, former Vice President Al Gore. Uh, Al, uh, you have been such a leader uh, in the field of climate change. You even got the Nobel Peace Prize for that, nominated by a Norwegian parliamentarian back then, uh, being myself, so we have a history back then. Uh, then we realized that climate change also was so life threatening. But first, I think, and I know you have been following uh, the situation uh, in India, seeing now that COVID has hit so very, very bad. And we know that uh, from all your years uh, in government, you also have experience from dealing with this kind of crisis. What, what is your take on what we're now seeing in India and any advice or encouragement uh, to the Indian people? Well, uh, thank you, uh, Borga. Uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me today, and it's an honor to be a part of such a, a distinguished uh, panel. It is absolutely heartbreaking to see the horrible pain and loss of life during this latest surge of the pandemic in India. My heart goes out to all of those who are suffering, who've lost loved ones, and, and the medical personnel who are on the front lines responding to this horrific crisis. As we've seen in some of the earlier severe outbreaks in Italy, Spain, Brazil, and here in, the, in parts of the US, 
One of the areas of highest concern is, is the, in the immediate near term is the capacity of their hospitals to take care of those experiencing severe COVID-19 symptoms. As we all know, many hospitals have run out of oxygen, bed space. They don't have enough healthcare workers to care for the sick. And at an international level, the global community must urgently do all it can to provide extra supplies of oxygen right away, uh, protective equipment, testing equipment, and of course, uh, vaccine supply and the raw materials to enable India to make vaccines, which they are already doing uh, with such great skill. Within India, dramatic steps should be taken, if I may say, to try to immediately slow the spread of the disease in this crisis phase. And that may mean further lockdowns done in a way that provides support for people to put food on their tables. It means encouraging people to wear masks uh, if they need to leave their homes. And it means distributing those masks and supplies to communities that lack them today. And it means rapidly ramping up a stronger, more widespread testing and tracking system to track the spread and track any new variants so that resources can be allocated on a priority basis to high-risk communities. Uh, India's recently opened up eligibility for the vaccine to anyone over the age of 18, but expanding access to and distribution uh, of vaccines is, is critical. Training more first responders to deliver the vaccine will be critical to speeding up vaccinations, given that only 2% of India's population is currently fully vaccinated. And in any situation like this, where lives are on the line, it's essential for leaders to follow the advice of the scientific and medical communities. And in order to be effective in combating misinformation, leaders must themselves clearly communicate and maintain the open communications channels and build trust within their communities. And finally, this pandemic, like the climate crisis, shows that global challenges of this scale must be attacked globally. They extend far beyond the borders of any individual country. So it's critical that we work together to share resources with India, to innovate and support those facing the greatest impacts. Countries that have thus far avoided the worst of the pandemic should see an outbreak like this one in India as a warning that both preparation and vigilance are absolutely essential. As you said, uh, we also see the same with uh, climate change. Doesn't know any kind of borders. It's a, it's a global problem. We have seen a change uh, in your government's policy on COVID. We see that the U.S. is now moving in the right direction. Uh, the numbers are going down. And we saw also uh, quite a consequential summit uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, where President Biden invited world leaders to make uh, further commitments. But there is a lot of things that have to happen in the coming months. And you have been the one saying that we know have to walk the talk for a long time. Are we seeing leaders now walking the talk? Do we see more ambitious indices? Or are, we, are you still watching to see if it really takes place? Well, I think, Borga, that the world is crossing the long-awaited political tipping point right now. You know, Dornbush's law in economics says things take longer to happen than you think they will, and then they happen faster than you thought they could. Having Joe Biden in the White House is a major step forward for the United States in our fight to tackle the climate crisis and to try to provide leadership for the world. The progress that uh, President Biden's made in his first 100 days ending today 
um, on this and many other issues is nothing short of remarkable. The fact that he was able to bring together the heads of state from 40 nations, including the world's 17 largest emitters of greenhouse gases, for a summit on the climate crisis shows that his Im uh, impressive commitment is real, not only to this issue, uh, but to others, but particularly to this issue. And it shows his understanding of the importance of renewed U.S. leadership. This leadership comes at a critical moment, of course, because as you know, this year as part of the Paris Agreement, all nations have a, an obligation under the treaty to reassess their original commitments to reduce emissions and increase their ambition. And even when the Paris Agreement was signed, we knew then that the commitments made in 2015 would altogether, even if all kept, would not be enough to keep the global temperature uh, increase below the aspirational goal of 1.5 degrees Celsius. So now world leaders absolutely must rise to this moment and commit to action in this decade that will allow us to meet this goal. And, and President Biden's own commitment to cut U.S. emissions by 50 to 52 percent by 2030, just nine years from now, is a very strong signal to other nations that bold action is not only necessary, but is achievable. We have what we need right now to make the transition to a sustainable economy. While it's great to hear nations pledge to be net zero by 2050, it's the actions they actually take in this decade that will determine whether that goal is really achievable. I think it is, but it'll determine whether we're able to avert the worst impacts of this crisis. And we also need wealthier countries to live up to their promises and demonstrate that a transition away from fossil fuels will not hurt economic growth, but to the contrary, can boost sustainable growth. The wealthier countries, including mine, also need to support vulnerable developing nations in their efforts towards adaptation as well as this crucial energy transition. We all have a moral obligation to do better and to support one another as we fight the climate crisis, and we need to do it with great urgency. No, thank you, and I think uh, you have reminded us many times that the cost of inaction exceeds the cost of action in this field. We know that um, still the relationship between the G2, uh, US and China, is still not the best. President Biden has said that it's uh, extreme uh, competition between the two countries. We did though see uh, President Xi Jinping join the summit last week. You also have said, Al, that you think China can overachieve their targets. We know that they say they will peak uh, by 2030 and then they will go climate neutral in 2060. They're the largest emitter in the world, uh, the U.S. number uh, two. Uh, how do you think China will overachieve? When do you think they will announce this? And what, what do you expect and what should we expect from China? Well, I'm very close to uh, Xi Jinping, the longtime climate policy leader in China. He speaks uh, with the full uh, connection to uh, President Xi Jinping, and I have a lot of confidence in him. And may I say, I think climate is now proving to be an area where the United States and China can cooperate and can work together in spite of the disagreements in other spheres, which are quite uh, large disagreements. But the relationship between the U.S. and China was critical to securing the Paris Agreement back in 2015. 
as the two largest greenhouse gas emitters, uh, China and the U.S., if, if both show leadership through concrete commitments and actions to follow through, the rest of the world is far more likely to follow suit. And, and as you mentioned, we shouldn't forget the significant commitments that Xi Jinping set out last fall before the American uh, elections, reaching net zero by 2060, which is too far off, but still an impressive goal, uh, and to peaking emissions this decade. They do need to make those goals even more ambitious. And we are seeing signals that they're beginning to do so, signals that convince me they will overachieve. China doesn't set goals unless they're absolutely certain they can reach them. That's the history. Uh, and then they uh, often overachieve. So that's the reason why I'm optimistic they really will. They have a history of planning their work and working their plan. Um, the second reason I think this is an important shift is because it reflects the economics of clean energy, which are startling. This month, a coalition that I co-founded called Climate Trace, we released a highly detailed analysis of all coal burning in China, all mining, transport, storage, every smokestack, smokestack all construction of new coal plants. And what that report shows is that China could save $1.6 trillion over the next 20 years by quickly shifting to renewable energy and shutting down its coal pipeline. So these economics are helping to push China toward a more sustainable path that will allow them to rapidly reduce emissions and grow their economy. But ultimately, what will be important for the U.S. is to show that accountability in meeting these targets matters. Similarly, the U.S. has to continue to lead by example itself to show that the investments we make now to reduce emissions will lead to the creation of millions of new jobs, not hyperbole, it's a reality, and will cause a long-term shift toward a sustainable future. A last question to you, Al, is related to President Biden's plan of cutting emissions by 50% uh, by 2030. How can the U.S deliver, because that's a lot of CO2 that has to happen. And Americans don't really like taxes. They don't like taxes on their petrol. So how is it going to deliver? Well, we've seen in this international negotiation and dialogue for so long, there's always been an argument that climate action, especially in developing nations, is costly and comes at the expense of economic growth. But the most important thing the United States can and should show the world is that that assumption is just no longer accurate. The investments that the Biden administration has proposed in green infrastructure, like building out the electricity grid to support the large expansion of wind and solar, uh, funding projects to improve the energy efficiency of our homes, these are job-creating measures that by design can't be outsourced. They're in the country. And that's true in every corner of the world, not just in the U.S. So as we recover from the pandemic, we absolutely must pursue a green and just recovery. And the Biden administration is showing how that can be done. Uh, the research shows that green stimulus measures have both short and long-term job creation and economic advantages over traditional stimulus measures. Green investments generate almost three times as many jobs per dollar as fossil fuel investments. Green investments are speedy. Uh, the energy efficiency retrofits are local, can't be outsourced. Natural capital spending is cheap and does not require extensive approvals or job retraining. And the Paris Agreement already has established investment plans 
for nations all around the world. So these investments have also significant co-benefits for health, for example. Uh, the electric vehicles reduce air pollution. Uh, for inequality, the retrofits for lower income households uh, reduce energy burdens. And for poverty, rural electrification uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, and increasing agricultural ecosystem productivity. The solutions are here. And not only can the U.S. achieve and even exceed our new NDC through a green and just recovery, we can be a powerful example to the world that addressing the climate crisis is critical to economic growth. And one final point, Borga, the American people support this plan. 70%, a majority of the opposition Republican Party support it. So I, I'm, I'm very optimistic we will achieve these goals. Thank you so much, Al Gore. Let's now go to your neighbor in the north, Canada, a G7 country, and also a great friend and, and leader, Minister François-Philippe Champagne, used to be uh, the foreign minister, was the trade minister before, but are now in charge of innovation and business. So uh, what we're now hearing about also business opportunities related to the green transition is uh, probably a great music in your ears, uh, François-Philippe. And we also saw that uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau said that Canada will now cut emissions by 40 to 45 percent by 2030. So I, I guess you're now all rolling up your sleeves nationally and you see also what we need to do internationally. Over to Ottawa. Well, thank you very much, Borgay. Let me just say also, uh, Mr. Vice President, I think you spoke our mind and our heart when you talked about our Indian colleagues uh, and certainly the tragedy. So thank you. What I think are the two biggest challenges of the world today, you have COVID and climate change, and I'll come to science, technology, innovation. But Borgay, allow me just to say uh, three things. I, I, and the Vice President said it well, obviously. Climate change is probably one of the greatest challenge uh, of humanity, if not the greatest challenge. But as he said, and I think as the world has come to realize, it provides also great opportunities. And that's where I think we need to focus also our discussion. And, and I must say, I was really inspired by uh, the words of uh, President Biden yesterday, uh, which was uh, certainly saying, in my view, when you merge the economy and the environment, what you get is jobs, jobs, jobs. I would add growth, growth, growth. When you have a healthy environment, you have a healthy economy. I mean, that's where the world now starts start to understand it. And as the vice president said, we've come to a tipping point. I think the world is understanding that. But luckily in Canada, we made the turn. I would say in 2015, we started that and certainly invested billions in climate action and also in clean growth. Uh, making sure that we would do our part, but more importantly, uh, trying to be a leader in clean technology to provide solutions to the world. Uh, Jay Inslee is also one of the key climate leaders uh, in the U.S. Uh, he sees climate change on the ground, but also he has some of the key companies that are contributing. So where do you see the role of the private sector, Governor, and the collaboration between uh, public-private uh, here? Well, it means everything, and now we can put it really to work. Uh, listening to President Biden last night, we know that America's back, and American business leaders are ready to really maximize their opportunities right now, and they're doing it big time in three different ways. And I, I want to go from the most obvious to the least obvious. The, the most obvious is 
the business leaders who are themselves transforming their industries and their companies and actually producing products and services. It's the people who go out and personally commit themselves to business leaders uh, to do this. It's like Al Gore who, who put work in Nest. And it's like the young people who are deciding when they make a business career to make it in clean energy. I met a woman named Sydney at the Integrated Energy Management facility we started at Central Washington University the other day. She's a young woman in her 20s, wants to have a business career, and she decided it's going to be in clean energy. So I would start with the leadership to invent the better mousetrap. Second, it's embracing the, uh, the, the new ways internally in your own operations, no matter what product you're manufacturing, to really use these as uh, mechanisms for cleaning up their operations. Microsoft, for instance, has an internal price on carbon throughout their supply chain. So whatever they buy from Microsoft, they've internalized the price of carbon when they make an investment and, and purchasing decisions. That has had an enormous impact throughout their supply chain. Amazon now is, is adopting new ways to address the carbon content of packaging to make packaging decisions in this regard. And those internal decisions really drive uh, supply chains all the way through. And that's where you really maximize opportunity, where you get exponential changes in your carbon content and your, your product. And the third thing, and the least obvious, and I think the thing that, and I hope people who are on this call, because they are such influential folks, is to use your own leadership springboard to influence other people. I was at a company called Ecos in Lacey, Washington the other day. They make environmentally friendly soap products and detergents and cleaning supplies. Their CEO, who's now won the most environmentally friendly company in America like two years in a row, she's giving uh, like a $2,500 bonus to her employees if they live within 10 miles of their production facility. So they reduce transportation and associated carbon reductions. Using your influence around other people, those three things, we're doing it big time. America's back. My state just adopted a, a cap on carbon and a clean fuel standard. And we put those policies together with entrepreneurial brilliance. We know the seeds that Al Gore planted 20 years ago have now arrived and are sprouting in the White House and they're sprouting in boardrooms too. And it's at a perfect moment. Thank you so much, uh, Garner Inslee. And we'll go back to Al, you want to? Just briefly, Borga, I want our audience to realize and understand that Jay Inslee's uh, campaign for president over the prior uh, two years was completely focused on solving the climate crisis. And Joe Biden listened to him throughout all of the debates and throughout the campaign. And a lot of what you are hearing from Joe Biden has been heavily influenced by the long interaction and the dedication and passion of Jay Inslee. Thank you so much. Back to Canada and François-Philippe. We also know that this is a lot about innovation and there are huge opportunities as the Vice President also was mentioning. We know that energy is also very important, of course, for Canada, but where do you see the business opportunities and where, how, how will you and uh, your Prime Minister deliver on those 45% uh, cut in a decade? Massive investment in innovation. What can lead us to the next breakthrough? If you think about electric vehicle, if you think about battery technology, I mean, I'm always reminded that Canada is the only Western nation which has all the critical elements uh, to be able to be manufacturing batteries. And I think uh, these investments 
uh, were going to be key. I'm thinking also about accelerating the shift to renewable energy. As you know, most of our renewable energy in Canada is produced by hydroelectricity. I think government regulations uh, can play a big difference in that. We introduced a price on pollution and carbon in 2019, but think about what we can do with standards uh, in terms of low and zero emission products. I think we can certainly do great things there. If you ask me one very specific policy we put in place, Morgan, which is gonna make a difference, uh, we reduce corporate income tax by 50% for businesses which will be manufacturing zero emission technologies. Those are very specific. There are very concrete measures that we have taken. And I would say it's for all of us now to seize the moment uh, and, and be ambitious. And, and I think the technologies are there and the planet cannot wait any longer. So uh, that's what I would put us as a high standard to be as ambitious as possible. We demonstrated that recently. We're going to continue to invest in science, technology, innovation, because that's where the breakthroughs are going to come from. Adrian, I felt, of course, I'm biased, but I thought it was quite a powerful opening uh, here. A lot of commitments. Well, I'm very pleased to say we've got a fantastic uh, lineup of guests who can bring uh, an extra dimension, perhaps, to our discussion and take it beyond politics and into both the private sector and into civil society. And uh, I want to turn to someone we've heard about President Biden's climate summit, but one of the participants, Hindu uh, Umara Ibrahim, you were there, you participated. Can you just give us an idea? You, know, you represent people in a country, Chad, that sits in the heart of Africa. It's the size, for people who don't know Chad, it's the size of South Africa. It's got nearly 20 million people living there and half of it is desert and half of it's tropical. You're really, the people you represent, they're on the front line of, of what climate change is doing. So what do you take away from the, the summit that President Biden organized. Thank you very much. Uh, so I think one of my takeaway from the Biden summit is very positive to see how the US come back to the Paris Agreement. But of course, after four years of darkness, so this is the bad thing. But of course, you know, at this stage, there was a lot of promise from the head of state to reduce the emissions. By 2030, by 2050, there was a lot of target, but it's still not yet into action. And we hear from the vice president, Al Gore, we hear from Jean-Francois. So what is missing is action. In my country, Chad, we still have the climate impact that we are feeling it in our daily life. We are seeing how the crisis moving from one year to another one, 2019, we have all the heat wave. 2020, we had the, uh, the flood around all our regions. And we are seeing we already have 1.5 degree. We already reached the Paris Agreement target. The consequences are huge with the addition of the COVID crisis. So we are having all the consequences around our regions. We cannot allow it that the car use the fossil fuel. We have the solar panel, we have the wind, who are cheaper than coal mine. Why we still have a thousand of coal mine in China, more than two, 300 in US? They must move, decarbonize all this economy in order to have a better life for our peoples. And we need the funding to adaptation. Even the peoples in my communities, who are the indigenous communities, we didn't wait for other peoples. We're already building through our 
on traditional knowledge, but there is a gap of finding those nature-based solutions. You know, it is only 1% of all the climate money that funding the nature-based solutions. So where are the money for adaptation and resilience of the peoples? That's what we need in my region, and we need it right now. We can't wait 2030 or 2050. Hindu, that is a really important message, and I'm, I know everyone listening will, will sit up and pay attention when they hear you speak on it. Um, I want to come back to you in a moment, but I want to turn to uh, Anish Shah, who's MD and CEO of Mahindra Group in India, and just get a business perspective on, uh, on what businesses can do to tackle the climate crisis. But before we go there, uh, Anish, you're obviously not just dealing with this, but Mahindra Group, uh, like all Indians, are dealing with the incredible, devastating impact of the second wave of COVID. How is that affecting you and, uh, you know, I hope your family, your loved ones, your colleagues? Can you just give us an idea of, of how it's impacted Mahindra and, and your nearest and dearest? So, Borgi, thank you for asking. It has been a difficult situation in India, but we are seeing a glimmer of hope. We are seeing some level of stabilization in numbers. Uh, it's too early to say as yet, but uh, that will at least help us. What we are doing right now is working closely with the government on a variety of areas. The first thing is to provide medical help to everyone. Oxygen is critical for us at this point. So it's about bringing in tankers from around the world, getting in oxygen concentrators, uh, building oxygen plants, which can be actually done in a week at a hospital, and uh, helping logistics as well, because that's another key factor. Uh, what we've seen is that it's not the scarcity of oxygen, it's scarcity of containers and cylinders to be able to transport that to the people who need them. And it's also the ability of having a tiered system for beds. So there's a whole host of activities that are going on on that front. Uh, the local governments, state governments, and the central government are completely engaged on this right now. And uh, we feel that uh, in the next week or two, there should be some headway in terms of containing the crisis and then uh, getting us to a better path from here. So I would say there's a hope and there's a fair amount of optimism around it at this point in time in a fairly dark scenario. Thanks, Anish. And I know that you're part of the CEO Climate Alliance and person who chairs that is Fika Zabesma, who's also with us on the call. And Fika, um, apart from your job as uh, honorary chair at Royal DSM, you're bringing together business leaders to get behind some of the measures that we've heard outlined from Francois Philippe and uh, Vice President Gore uh, and uh, Governor Inslee. Can you tell us what exactly businesses are doing? What are the CEOs that you're convening doing together to help move the dial on this issue? I would like to touch three issues and that is mitigation, adaptation, and leadership. On mitigation, companies have power. Companies have impact. If you have power and impact, hopefully you take also the responsibility which goes together with that. And what does that mean? That means reducing your emissions towards, at the end, net zero by 2050. But I don't want to put only an endpoint but also the roadmap with all the intermediate steps towards that end goal in 2050. Net zero and the roadmap towards that. Secondly, disclose. Disclose at least your own emissions and be clear on your target setting. Disclose maybe the financial impact of climate-related financial 
matters because that makes it also transparent for investors. And also embrace the carbon emission reduction policies of governments, like carbon pricing. Carbon pricing is one of the most effective tools uh, to reduce our emissions, even companies. Companies even indicated that the carbon pricing should be above 30 to $50 per ton to be effective. Well, if companies say that, I know what governments should do. I chair together with Anand Mahindra uh, the high-level commission on the competitiveness of carbon pricing. And we've shown that carbon pricing is not reducing competitiveness or jobs in uh, countries. Like Al Gore was also saying, it even helps countries to become stronger and, and better. So emissions, transparency, and also embracing carbon policies um, uh, is important. On the mitigation, unfortunately, uh, we see already the adverse effects of climate change today. So in parallel, we need to work on adaptation as well, especially for the most vulnerable countries. And in order to achieve that, this needs leadership, leadership of CEOs, of business leaders, and of course also governmental leaders. Like I said, if you have impact, take the responsibility. If you run a company, work for all your stakeholders, work for the long term. The people today and generations to come can benefit from our own actions and make our society better. Nobody can be successful, nor even claim to be successful when operating in a world that fails. Uh, and Fika, you know, we heard from Al Gore, he said that, you know, politicians, the tipping point has been reached and we're now starting to see uh, real action. Is your sense, you know, you spend a lot of your time on Zoom calls with fellow CEOs, is your sense that they've gone from talking about it to actually doing stuff on it? Yeah, because the points that I addressed, like the emission reductions, the roadmap to net zero, the transparency, the embracing of carbon policies, and also the adaptation, we are going with the CEO climate leaders, which is now a group of 100 companies. Uh, Al Gore uh, spoke often for them in Davos in the last couple of years. For the uh, COP in the UK uh, at the end of this year, that companies say, hey, this is what we are going to do, the things I just mentioned, and we stimulate governments to take even stronger actions. And it is uh, at least interesting to see that companies step forward to ask from governments uh, to not hesitate with their actions. Now, more clear, we cannot be. Yeah. I mean, and one of those companies and one of the CEOs who, uh, who works with you on the Climate Alliance is uh, Anish. Uh, Anish, how is a company like Mahindra and, and your fellow CEOs in, in India, how are you working together with the government to actually progress so that you have economic growth and you have this kind of green and sustainable uh, transition that FICA has been talking about and that our political colleagues have been talking about? Okay, our government has made uh, some very significant commitments, uh, including at the Paris Agreement, where the greenhouse gas emission intensity is to reduce by 30 to 35 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. And uh, there are a number of actions being taken around solar energy, around auto recycling, etc. So the way we look at it, actually, climate change is really not a choice. It is a necessity. It's a necessity because, one, it's the right thing to do. Second, it is something that economically is working out to be much better. As Vice President Gore said, uh, if you look at the economics of this initiative, 
uh, it's really a business opportunity. It's about lower costs in many cases. It's about investing in green businesses and finding new opportunities in the way we work. So we're doing a whole range of things uh, in all of these areas and uh, working closely with the Indian government to do so. And thank you. Can you give us maybe a, perhaps a, for some of our uh, people joining, a concrete example of the kinds of things that companies like Mahindra are doing to kind of move the dial on this issue? Sure. So let's look at uh, the core of India, uh, transportation. Uh, for many of you who come to India, you would have seen three wheelers um, on the roads and they'd be all around the place. So we actually have electric three wheelers now. And uh, they are at cost parity. It's easy to swap batteries. And uh, we see a revolution in three-wheelers going from uh, emission-based three-wheelers to electric three-wheelers. So that's one change which will make a significant impact. The second example is around solar energy. Uh, costs in solar energy have come down significantly. That's something that uh, is transforming energy in India uh, just because the costs are much lower than uh, fossil fuel. Thanks for that. I think that gives us a, a very clear idea of exactly uh, what the kind of shifts are that uh, are making a difference. Hindu, can I come back to you and just ask, you know, when you hear about the commitments from politicians and from business leaders for this kind of change, what do you think needs to be done on the ground in somewhere like Chad, where some of the world's poorest people are experiencing some of the first and most devastating impacts of climate change? Is it enough that we're talking about this, that we're putting in, me in place measures like the kind of measures you've been hearing about, or are there things on the ground in places like Chad that we also ought to be doing? I think the simple answer is no, it is not enough. If it was enough, we cannot be in this panel of Vienna. So what they need to be doing, firstly, they have to listen to indigenous peoples, those who are only 5% of the world populations, but who protect 80% of the world's biodiversity. We are the engineers of the nature. Ask our grandmothers and our grandfathers they know how to keep the balance in all the forests. They know how to restore the coral reef in the oceans. And we know how to live in harmony with the nature. And all of us know, if we harm the nature, we are harming our health, COVID show us. So we need all to understand living in harmony. In order to do that, we need first thing to respect and recognize the right of indigenous peoples, especially the land rights. Secondly, we need to invest in the nature. As I said earlier, 1% of the climate finance who is dedicated for the nature is not enough. We need more to rebuild back better our ecosystem, to give the adaptation and resilience to the peoples who are impacted today. And lastly, in this one, it is all the ODA agencies, the development bank, private sectors, are you ready to put at least $1 billion to indigenous lead solutions. Thank you. Um, can, can I just bring back in Francois-Philippe and, and Al Gore? We've heard some really interesting examples of what you know, collaboration can achieve, but we've also seen in developed economies that there's a huge pushback from certain sections of the community on the kind of measures that need to be taken. In France, for example, you know, if you're taxing diesel, you're taking away our transportation. You know, how are you gonna, you're imposing these kind of green measures on us. 
and uh, we don't want to play along with that. How do politicians get over that hump? And, and Al, I know you've been kind of trying to help people over that hump for 20-odd for years uh, or more, but how do you communicate to folks that these changes are not going to result in job losses, they're not going to result in impoverishing communities, that they're actually going to deliver on the promises that we hear? Well, first of all, let me give you one bit of evidence that uh, supports the notion that we are uh, going to see less resistance. The, the, the coal miners union in the United States, the United Mine Workers, just fully endorsed Joe Biden's plan, which phases out coal. The biggest business organizations have now changed their rhetoric. Of course, there will still be uh, e efforts by some of the large uh, polluters to, to push back and to be passive aggressive and to slow it down. But in, in general, what we, we are seeing is that the resistance is fading away. You know, uh, back in 1992, the then oil minister in Saudi Arabia uh, said uh, publicly that the Stone Age didn't end because of a shortage of stones. Uh, and the, the fossil fuel age will not end because uh, of a shortage of fossil fuels. Both the first and this one will end because something better has come along. Uh, and, you know, we were all startled uh, decades ago to understand that computer chips went down in price uh, by, by half every 18 months and got better at the same time. That same unusual technology cost reduction curve has been operating powerfully on solar, wind, batteries, electric vehicles, and hundreds of less well-known but nevertheless very significant efficiency improvements. We're at the early stages of a sustainability revolution powered by uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, the network of things, the biotechnology revolution. It's giving executive teams the ability to manage uh, atoms and molecules uh, and genes with the same proficiency the IT companies have demonstrated in managing bits of information. And this revolution has the magnitude of the industrial revolution, but the speed of the digital revolution. Uh, and as a result, all of the economic calculations are changing. Uh, and, and we're seeing the old fossil fuel economy not only uh, be resisted because of the, the, the harm it's doing, but because it's no longer competitive. Uh, and, and this is making it crystal clear to some of those who used to resist this transition that really it's inexorable and they need to find ways to be a part of the transition. They're not all there yet. Uh, and uh, it, we still see greenwashing and resistance. But one clear sign is that the investor community has changed. You know, th there, there are now 87 uh, large investors managing $37 trillion worth of assets who have committed to making their entire portfolios net zero by 2050, and that means starting right now. Uh, this is a very positive sign, and regulators are starting to catch up uh, as well. One other positive sign, just yesterday, the most coal-intensive uh, country in, in Europe, Poland, just finally reached an agreement where the miners there have recognized the reality of this inexorable 
transition. So I, I think all these uh, company, all these steps are going to push companies to take concrete steps to reduce their emissions, while the incredible cost savings and invested investment opportunities provided by the sustainability revolution we're now entering will help to pull companies to make proactive, uh, take proactive steps in shifting to a zero carbon future. Thanks, Al. And uh, Francois-Philippe, you're obviously making the case to constituents and voters. How can businesses help make that case to employees that this is a change that's not going to be a threat, that it's going to be an opportunity? Uh, the first one is education. Uh, young people get it. Uh, and, and I think we just have to listen to them a bit more. Uh, we were listening to Hindu, and, and I love when you said indigenous people are the engineer of nature. I mean, this is powerful. I think the young people, education was the first step, if you see in our country, making sure people understood the benefit that when you have a healthy economy, you have a healthy environment, those are going together. The second thing I would say is about leadership. Uh, you know, when we introduce a price on pollution, which people would say in the world is probably one of the most important public policy that you can implement to make change. Uh, it, was, it took leadership to do that. But once we've done that, I would say that citizens, consumers, and businesses understood the potential. The third thing is investments. We just shifted our investments as a government. Now we invest more in clean technologies. We invest in the things of the future. I said my job is to make sure that I invest to preserve and create the jobs of today, but the industry of tomorrow. There's something about just generational equity. We want to make sure we invest in industries that are going to be there 20 years, 30 years from now. And once you go to the public and you explain that, I would say this is the type of thing people understand. We've seen it with electric vehicle. We're seeing it, for example, now with hydrogen. And Vice President Gore was right. I mean, if you add the layer of artificial intelligence, quantum computing, the speed that we're going to see these things happening is going to be tremendous. I mean, it's nothing like we've seen before because this is going to have an horizontal impact on all sorts of industries. And when I talk to workers, when I talk to businesses, I say, let's invest together in the future uh, because we all have kids and grandkids. We all understand now that we've reached the tipping point. I think the vice president was right. There's no business today that you talk to that does not in my view, those that I've been talking to just do not understand that we've reached a tipping point and not just going to go faster. So the choice is, do you want to be a, an industry of the past or do you want to be an industry of the future? If you want to be there 20 years, 30 years from now, you know what we have to do. And as governments, our role is just to accompany businesses, citizens and society towards that because we know that uh, this is a better future for all of us. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, over to you, Adrian. Yeah, just a reminder that you can watch this on weforum.org and you can find out more about all of the issues we've been talking about. But it just remains for me to thank all of our panelists, Al Gore, Francois-Philippe Champagne, Hindu uh, Ibrahim, Jay Inslee, uh, Fika Sibesma, and uh, Jenya Dana and Ini Shah. Uh, and Shabana, you too, for joining us today. Uh, it's been a great discussion, and thanks everyone who's participated online. Thanks from all of us here at the World Economic Forum, and see you on the next Agenda Dialogue. From all of us in Geneva, goodbye. <laughs>